Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Now normally, Johnny likes to come second, but as Cole cannot join us until later, I'm going to say hello to you now. Hi Johnny. Hello, how are you? We're all good. And uh, good. and this week we have a special guest talking to us from his home in Brighton on the south coast of the UK. I'm delighted to say hello to Anil Mystery. Hello Anil. Hi guys, and I'd imagine the blues music is playing under my voice, so I'll say hi guys. <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly okay, is. Sorry. Um, just a, a, a point for our listeners, um, Cole. Hopefully, will be joining us later. So at, at some point, his voice will appear from from nowhere, um, and there's a reasonable chance he might start asking questions that we've already covered. So um, <laughs> yeah, bear with us. Um, okay, so before but we get... you won't have his tin can this week. That's 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 good. All this week we hope not. Anyway, unless he's left it. No tin can and twine from from Carl this week. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so to move the show on, uh, here's Johnny with some feedback from last week. Okay, so episode uh, twenty-three notes. Um, we had uh, a bunch of really interesting feedback that had kind of nothing to do with the uh, the podcast. Well, it did have to do with the podcast. It had to do with all the tangents that we talked about in the podcast. So. Um, <laughs> uh, we had, uh, Mehdi Buhulasa, our bud was, uh, uh, enjoying the lottery tickets conversation and also, um, was trying not to drive into farm animals. So as, as usual, we need to say, Mehdi, please mark yourself safe after listening to the podcast. We want to make sure you're okay. Um, and Ben Kudo, uh, commented on my language, Ben, I'm going to try really hard not to swear now because it doesn't really create any extra work for Simon anyway. Um, and, and Simon has given us a new term. Uh, it is omni shambles, right? So do I have that right? Simon? That's it. That's what omni shambles. Okay. If something goes, shambles. If, okay. if, right. if something's wrong in several different places, that's, that's an omni shambles, which over here we call a cluster. So. Just, just <laughs> or a cluster frick, Ben. Well, I'm going to use cluster frick instead. So, um, let's see. Rollin Banderab uh, had some uh, feedback about different ways of posting the Instagram from desktop machines. Um, so that's a there's some good info there if you're interested. And James Giorgiano loved uh, the conversation about uh, BMWs and window tinting, which of course Carl knows lots about living down there in Florida. Uh, and we had a little conversation about dynamic range of film versus digital and a couple other technical bits as well. Um, and James usually has some really great technical uh, kind of notes and feedback. So as usual, we had a little bit there. Um, so that's it from last week. Unless, uh, Simon, were there any? I'm no, sure no. I missed a bunch of stuff. but No, no, no that will do, I'm sure. All right, very good. Did we want to jump into um, Mr. Ben Kudo's question right yes, off the top? That, or, yeah, and that will be Ben's question that he asked nearly a month ago. I was going to just say, Ben, we thank you for being so patient. We <laughs> we keep forgetting to mention your comment here, so or your question. So here we go. Um, uh, ben said, you know, great great podcast, and he wanted to know. Uh, a, about adapters and what we do with our adapters. He said specifically, do you like to have one adapter per lens or do you share adapters uh, with all of your kind of common mount lenses, right? So if you have five M42 lenses, do you have five adapters or do you have one adapter and you take them and switch them on and off, et cetera? Good, good question. Why don't we uh, get some feedback from the group here, huh? 
Well, I've got, as you might imagine, I've got plen- plenty of adapters, um, and, and but I've got I've got nothing. I don't have anything specifically organised, other than the fact that I've got two boxes full of Nex adapters, a, a box full of Micro Four Thirds, and a box full of FX, and oh, I've got adapters also for. Uh, uh, Nikon and Canon uh, as as well. Um, I like the idea of a of an adapter per lens, uh, but yeah, it's just it's just the cost of it. Um, it just doesn't work right. for me, especially when you've got you know a, a fair a fair size collection of lenses. So that that doesn't doesn't quite work for me. But it's it's always seems to be the case though. The adapter that I really want and I want it in a hurry is never the the adapter that I can find. <laughs> it can be a, a, an absolute nightmare that way. Um, how, how about you, Anil? Yeah, well, your, your last point there is exactly what happens to me. I, I, I was saying earlier, I've got, I bought about five M42 to F mount adapters, and they all disappear. I'm sure somewhere in my house they're they're mating and making little baby <laughs> adapters in a corner, but I don't know where the hell they are, and I've just had to order another one. But generally, I, I've again, I, I end up with so many permutations of you know, one lens to one mount and to this camera and that camera, they did, they've ended up in a drawer uh, full of round things um, along. They're probably scratching a UV filter and a, a yellow filter right now in the drawer, um, <laughs> happily scratching the hell out of each other. So I, I, I don't buy one per camera and um, per, for per lens per camera, if that makes sense. I'll just buy one and then sw- swap my lenses out because um, I just never know when I'm going to use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is my. <laughs> I'm just gonna uh, provide a little sound effect here. <laughs> that's, that's my bin full of adapters. <laughs> no, um, I, I have. I tend to have multiple, I guess, adapters per mount um, because I do leave some attached to the lenses I most frequently use, uh, and then of course I misplace those kind of. Uh, generally I connected to the lens and then I have to look for the whole thing. So I have multiple adapters because I never know if I'm going to be able to find the one I really want more than anything else. And then, I mean, I do have some other kind of really special adapters. I mean, for my um, Olympus pen F lenses, I have the original Olympus adapters, which are really fantastically made and they're rather expensive to find. Um, so I tend to use those adapters stacked onto modern adapters if I'm going to like a digital camera. So I I have, I guess, two classes of adapters. I have the the newer, cheaper ones, and then probably the ones that are a little bit more expensive. Um, like I, I have a, a M4, I'm sorry, a um, uh, Leica M adapter to Contax RF, which is a kind of a custom manufactured. So I have, I have good adapters and crap adapters, I guess maybe if that makes sense. So the good ones I... I keep around and I get a bin full of crap ones. So, so, so what I can I can ascertain from that is we're, we're all blokes and we just shove crap in drawers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then shout when we can't find it. <laughs> can you? What, hey, have you seen my adapter? Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Which one? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's the thing is I, I I go along with that except my drawers are so full my adapters won't fit into the drawers so it, it sounds like I'm organised with having boxes for certain types <laughs> but no I've just got five boxes just full of adapters now. Um, yeah. I, I think it's also worth worth noting there that uh, uh, that adapter question from Ben Kuto of the Ben Kuto camera company on eBay is uh, a seller of K&F adapters in, in America. 
in the US. So uh, um, <laughs> I, I do wonder how many adapters uh, Ben has and how he uh, looks after those on his lens. But um, I think it's it's fair to say I think it'll be a good idea to, if you're interested in KNF adapters in the America. Because if you're in Britain and Europe, you should come to me. But uh, if you're in, in the states, uh, then uh, look up the Ben Ben Kuto, the uh, Kuto camera company um, is a good guy so uh, hopefully we can uh, send you some business there ben um now then with a with a break uh, to uh, tradi- tradition because um, johnny usually asks, asks all our questions um we have our guest <laughs> Anil has come armed with several questions so um, i'm going to hand it over to you now Anil, and uh, okay. the questions you have uh my first question is um, right, I've I've amassed a whole bunch of M42 lenses, and um, I play with them with lots of cameras. But I'd I'd like to get a proper M42 camera. Uh, so, which metered M42 mount film SLR camera would you recommend for all my lenses? Just a, a, a question on that. Um, yeah, because I know that we've we've had a little conversation a few weeks ago. Um, is aperture priority important to you? Yeah, well, I, I, just as a note on this, I, I tried uh, all this stop-down stuff annoys me, and I tried buying a Chinon C3, and I've uh. tried buying one three times, and every time I've tried to buy one, they just there's something crappy and wrong with them, and they're just hard to find in good condition. So I'm wondering if there's anything else out there that may not not do that last-minute aperture yeah. thing that it does. Yeah. Is there's um, something else out there that um, is just a decent camera that I don't have to spend a fortune on? I I have a thought, <laughs> an unconventional thought, uh, because I and I have been through the same kind of question. Yeah. Because um, I have a lot of M42 lenses, I have quite a few M42 cameras, and I mean, I can I can I guess say the solution I've come to, which is um, they work great on my Minoltas, <laughs> and so I, I basically I find that um, Minoltas because the the uh, the flange distance is so similar and the way the adapter, um, works so well is that I, I end up putting my, um, my, uh, my M42 lenses on a, uh, Minolta aperture priority camera. Now, of course I have to work, I have to close down the aperture, um, to make the exposure, but I find it to be a, um, a small price to pay right. <laughs> to, to, to have a camera that actually is so much easier to use than anything in M42 that will open aperture meter. I mean, I don't, I don't find the, uh, I don't find the, um, uh, what is it? The, uh, Pentax, uh, Spotmatic F. I don't find that to be a great solution because it, you know, it really only works with specific lenses. You mentioned the issues with the the chin on. I think anything from that era with a lot of electronics is just problematic by nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in the Minolta's, in my experience, are much more dependable cameras in terms of the electronics. <laughs> well, um, that's annoying because I, last week, <laughs> last week, I gave away my Minolta aperture priority camera no! to a student. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, get another one really cheap. Okay. Get, get it. Get it. Get an M42 to Minolta adapter. And it actually, I got to say, it really does work okay. very easily. And that's 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 become my solution. And, and it's funny. It's to the point where I have a lot of uh, M42, you know, Spotmatic bodies, et cetera. I'm just kind of at a point where I'm going to sell most of them. Yeah. Because to be honest, I'm never really going to – if I'm going to shoot 
you know, kind of like full manual. Cause I hate stop down metering on all the spotmatics. I it's hate the pain. whole, yeah, it's a pain and the switch on the side always seems like it jams up and doesn't work right. So it, it's just a pain. And I, and if I'm going to shoot an unmetered SLR, it's probably not going to be a spotmatic. Yeah. So I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, eh, I'm going to just sell all the spotmatic stuff and just use my, those lenses on probably on a Minolta. Johnny, have you tried the yeah. ES, the Pentax ES or the yeah, ES2? Yeah, yeah. You have? Yeah. I don't like them. I mean, they're just, it, it, they, it makes the camera bigger and heavier. I don't like particularly um, the electronics in them. I think they're, any camera, I just had, my opinion is any camera from that era with a lot of electronics is not dependable. I don't care who made it. I, I mean, I've seen, I can't tell you how many bricked up, Nikon F3s I've seen anything from that era with electronics is problematic and I think that the, the M42 mount just as a blanket statement is just not well suited for open aperture metering in any configuration that's just my take on it I people will disagree with me but I, I I'm not a big fan of the Spotmatic F or the ES cameras so. Well, there's there's an, there's another camera um, which I've only thought about uh, in the in the last two minutes um, that might fit the bill, except what you've just said there about electronics and reliability. Uh, this this might be the reason why this is perhaps not the best suggestion, um, and that's the uh, the Roly SL cameras, uh, the QBM mount ones, mm. um, because I've got in front of me a QBM to M42 adapter. And yeah. it's it appears that it's got a um, an automatic um, I don't know what the phrase is you know the uh, uh, pin actuator yeah so so it looks as though it will actually take a photograph or rather you can you can frame your your photograph wide open set your aperture and it will automatically close down that's certainly the look of what I've got in front Possible. of me. So in theory, it sounds like it sounds perfect. Um, I mean, the camera that I got this with, it's an SL35, is beautiful. It's mint, and it came mm -hmm. with uh, a 51.8 planar, uh, which I've got to say I, I far prefer that to the Contact Yashica 51.7 uh, version. I think it's a it's a nice lens. It's better made. Uh, I think it's I think it's excellent, but the the downside is this this mint camera is just like most other SL thirty fives and that the and that's the electronics are just completely and utterly flaky on it. Yeah, yeah, there, there was uh, <laughs> the and all the German stuff. It was not their finest moment <laughs> trying to make electronic SLRs. In the, I mean, it just wasn't. It, I think the Japanese ran circles around them and it seems like everything from that era that came out. I mean, I've got, I have a couple of, um, Oh, the Zeiss icon Bennett Mount cameras and they're just, they're bricks. I mean, they're horrible. You know, the electronics were bad. They're just so problematic. And the Roly, I mean, it, they're, they're lovely cameras, but yeah, everything just electronic wise is so problematic. And so I guess that's where I landed on the Minolta is, I mean, they were making, those cameras, you know, fairly far along. And I feel like the electronics are not quite as problematic. So, but I, I actually like your Roly suggestion, Simon, well, that, that could be an idea. interesting one. 
yeah. give me a new a new rabbit hole to run down the world. Yeah, really. yeah I'll yeah. have to get my checkbook out again. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've got one <laughs> with dodgy, I've got one with dodgy electrics. <laughs> <laughs> it it works most of the time, <laughs> you know. So uh, it's just when you when that decisive moment comes along, that will be the moment it doesn't work. You can just you yeah, just know it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that brings me to my next question, because um, the first question, the way you guys sort of answered it. I kind of came to a similar conclusion and almost gave up and I started to think along the digital line. So I, I haven't used, um, the, I, I use uh, classic lenses with Nick, my Nikon F-mount cameras, but I don't have a mirrorless camera. And I think that could be the way forward and just an easier way of using all these lenses. Um, so my question to you, next question would be, which mirrorless camera would you recommend to use with my all my M39, M42 and all these obscure lenses? So I want something that's, has a no low pass has no low pass filter, so it's nice and sharp. Minimum mm -hmm. sixteen megapixels. Um, now I'd imagine I'd want focus peaking, uh, but with a good electronic viewfinder. And my budget is around five hundred pounds. There's your challenge. And uh, and that, and can that five hundred pounds be for a used camera? Um, yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. it, it just opens things up. Quite, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I want to hear all the options for sure. Um, well, this actually might be a good time to uh, bring Carl in because I've on our our feed I can see a picture of Carl, although he's muted at the moment and he's now unmuted. So uh, I'm going to say hello from hello to Carl in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning. Hey, Carl. Hi, Carl. <laughs> How are you doing, Florida man? Oh man, I've just been walking around for about two miles in the <laughs> 95 degrees, taking photos with our photo group. I'm hot. This could be. <laughs> well, I I think that um, this is a good a good place for you to to start, uh, Cole. Um, I, I take it you heard the question there. Alpha seven two. <laughs> <laughs> the five, well, I, I think um, actually no five. Mm, well, the, right. the the budget's five hundred pounds, which is going to be I don't know about seven hundred and fifty dollars, some, something like that. I think that's going to be a bit of a struggle for an A seven two. That's getting close. It might be hard to find a used one, right? Yeah, well, you can find a used one. It's just it may have had to have fallen down a few steps and down the road and down a grid <laughs> uh, for five hundred uh, pounds. That's 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 what I'm thinking there. Also, actually, I, I it's interesting you've just mentioned there about not having a low pass filter. Yeah, um, I think. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think the, the the Sony has one. It certainly has some kind of filter on the front yeah. of it, which is quite annoying. Um, yeah. But in terms of sharpness, if if it has got uh, a filter on it, and I don't know if this also applies to the A6000 ranges, because that's going to be the the if it's not an A7, then if it's Sony, then you're into the something like an A6000. Certainly for that kind of money, you could right. easily pick one up. Um, but I'm I'm not too sure if. Um, sharpness is 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 that much of an issue with with low pass or or not um i'd, I'd sometimes wonder if it's, it's a little bit of a red herring at times i mean it'd be interesting to hear i know why that's a specific um question on there really um i just like i obviously because of the way filters um um ccds work and um um sensors they the whole thing of slightly blurring your picture um to get rid of any moire effects and things is something I can do in post-production. I don't want my my yeah. sensor to do it for me. I'd like to have that option. And after using cameras with and without, I just like, I mean, you know, I, I had a little Fuji X70 um, and the, the images were so sharp and crisp. 
um, mm. and compared to even my Nikon D D750, uh, they, there was just something about them. Obviously, it's a different kind of sensor, but um, I like that crispy sharpness you get with those lenses, uh, with with those um, sensors. Yeah. That mm. I think, especially when you're at a lower resolution as well, I, I think it just gives you a nice look. Mm-hmm. Actually, I actually use two cameras. Um, if I do street photography, I, I only use a, a Fuji XE2. And and I like it with um, rangefinder lenses. It's a perfect combination, especially like a 35mm Canon LTM. Right. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll go to a city and I'll only take that lens. And it's perfect for everything. And um, like on a recent trip to D.C. So um, it depends on what you want to do. Yeah, the XE2. I've I've had a look at the is it the XE3. That's more obviously a yeah, more recent yeah. model. Yeah, yep. yeah, the XE3. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's also got the benefit of uh, a better EVF on the on the XE3 than the XE2. Although I think the XE2S and that yep. is, is may have the same one as the XE3. I'm not too sure, but uh, and do they have the the focus uh, peaking through the yeah. electronic viewfinder? Because that's yeah. something I think I'd obviously need. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, that's I use a similar. I, um, I have a pair of XE2s that I use for, well, mainly for digitizing at this point. But um, yeah, it's it definitely you can find it really cheap at this point. So um, that would definitely work. Okay, that's a I think, good one. I think, I think that the, the yeah, I think the the the, the XE3 and uh, one of the higher Sony A series cameras. Uh, is the obvious place to point you if you with with that particular budget i i personally would try and push you to um save a bit more and, and get a an a7 mark ii uh, but okay. purely from the basis of its full frame and therefore your classic lenses are going to work in exactly the same way as you yeah. used to using your classic lenses on your film cameras um, yeah and for, for me that's always been a bit of an issue because i've grew up with film cameras and 50 millimeters means a certain thing to me and it always has done including the day then when i i went and had a uh a two times crop camera of uh olympus uh om em1 uh, which becomes a 100 millimeter lens and that i was i was I would liked what 50 millimeter lenses did on that, but I could yeah. never, I could sometimes, I'd like to, and I still do it. I, I can look at a scene and I know exactly what lens I need to use. And I found myself doing a, doing a, a conversion when I was walking around with a, uh, a camera that's not full frame. So I think, okay, I want the 50 mil lens, but actually, no, I don't want the 50 mil lens. I need something wider than that or longer than that because I've got to do the conversion. So that's a bit of an annoyance, although, it, it's less of an issue with APS-C than it is with uh, uh, Micro Four Thirds, and it's also far less of an issue the longer the lens becomes as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really at the wide end that you're you're handicapped. And I think once you're over perhaps thirty-five millimeter, I think it's it's far less of an issue. Yeah, okay. I don't know though. You know, I've um, I've just started noticing this because I haven't had the Sony camera very long, where I've taken lenses that I've only used on it and then looked to see how would they be back on the Fuji. And I did it the other day. So I really I really like my Nikkor 105 2.5, and I've been getting some good shots with it on full frame. And I put it on the Fuji yesterday, and I was not as happy with it at all. So I, I could it notice. Long. It gets too long. Yeah. yeah. Plus the size that the lens weighed twice as much as the camera. Yep. Yeah. Why can't things just be easy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you've got you've got one more question for us there. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I it comes out. I'm, I'm sure you guys have got a similar thing. I, I, I love point and shoots, and uh, so you buy point and shoots. And sometimes I go to car boot sales or charity shops, and I find something might work once, and it just turns into a brick. But I haven't paid much for it, but it's got a great little lens on it. So, as an example, I have an Olympus Mu2 that's just lying there uh, with this lovely lens. I have got a, uh, a Yashica T Star AFD, which I think was the, like the first of the Yashica yeah. T-series, but it's yeah. got the Carl Zeiss Tessar 35 uh, 3.5 T-star lens on it. And again, that worked perfectly, and then it died. But these things have great lenses on them, and I'd love to be able to do something with them. And I've seen all sorts of things and ways people have hacked and done well, things people have done with lenses. But, you know, is there any – what what can I do with these lenses to get them back on one of my cameras? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think well, that's a that's, big, that's, wide question. Yeah. yeah, well, I think I think the you know, the, the the three of us aren't. Um, I mean, we've we've we we all adapt lenses, but the what we don't generally adapt lenses is from compact cameras, right? Um, and I've I've taken a a compact. I think I actually took a a, a dead um, Yoshika. Uh, T uh, camera apart, uh, similar to the one you're talking about, and I got through to the lens. And I was thinking, what on earth can you do with this? Because it just didn't have anything that you could actually mount in a conventional way. Um, yeah. yeah. And, I, that's uh, what I was going to say. I've done a bit of that as well. And and it, stuff. But you're yeah, absolutely right exactly. in terms of about the, the quality of these lenses. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a Minox, which, uh, which I've used many times now, um, the color Minotaur 35mm 2.8. And it's a stunning lens. Um, but the thing is, I didn't do it. I bought it. Um, there's a chap I know, and he, he converted it and put it onto, um, I think he actually converted it straight to E-mount. And, it, and, it, and it, he adapted it by uh, bonding it somehow to an LTM 39 adapter to, to Nex. And um, and just did a really good job, but he's, he's obviously got some engineering skill, uh, whereas I have absolutely zero engineering skill, and my my ad- adaptations usually use sellotape, so um, that's just not going to be good enough there. But it's it's something I think we'd we'd like to know more about, but I don't I don't well, know I if any of us really can help you much more than that. How about I you? There's a business opportunity, I think there are, isn't there? there are, you there know, are people in the group that would know the answer to that. Phil probably knows the answer to that. There's some other people that do sophisticated adaptations. I mean, J- Johnny and I have done adaptations of old lenses, but for me, it's um, taking a lens from a bellows camera, which is like the easiest one to adapt. It's got a you know a, a, a retaining ring on the back of the bellows. You drill a hole in a body cap and put it through, and you tighten down, and then you use a, a helicoid or something. But um, anything beyond that. I wouldn't have a clue, but I've seen Phil adapt all sorts of lenses. And I bet if you posted a question, someone would know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a business opportunity here, isn't there? I mean, I, I know obviously there are you know real experts over in Japan and various people who can do it on a one-off, one-by-one basis. And at some point you have to do that. But is there someone who's, I don't know, 3D printing a simple way of you know clipping an old piece of glass into a, a mount and just whacking it on <laughs> a large full-frame camera just to make life easy because uh, I like life to be easy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think yeah. the answer is no there, isn't it? Because ultimately, these they're all when they're doing compact systems, you, you, you're looking at proprietary. It's completely proprietary, isn't it? So it's it's fitting everything around the electronics. In fact, it, they're virtually attaching the lens to the PCB, aren't they? So it's uh, yeah, it, it's going to be different every time. 
Yeah. The difficulty is the, anything that's autofocus and auto, you know, aperture that you don't have aperture control over. Those are going to be the two biggest challenges. And also those are real, those are relatively short, uh, register distance too. I mean, they're very, mm-hmm. the lenses sit very close to the film. I, I just remounted, I, in front of me, I have, uh, um, I remounted the, my Vivitar ultra wide and slim to go on a, uh, LTM, uh, LTM oh, wow. and that worked out fine, but that's that's you know there's no aperture there, but there it's not autofocus, you yeah. know, so it's challenging and it sits very close to the film plane, so that's a challenge too. Yeah, in which case, hang on, just excuse me while I just I'm sorry, I've just smashed my lenses. No use for them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should, well, I, let's move on. <laughs> well, well, just, I'm going to I'm going to I'm actually going to shout out this week, but I'm going to give a shout out now because it's quite um, apt. And there's a guy on Flickr called that uh, goes up under the name of Matt's Crazy Lens Adventures. And he does some amazing stuff uh, with, 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 with lenses. And in particular, he seems to, he seems to uh, do a, a, a large number of compact camera conversions. And I think yeah. about a year or so ago, he, he did a, um, a conversion with a, um, a Snyder, a, a, a Samyang compact camera with a Snyder zoom lens, which sounds like the, the most unlikely uh, candidate for 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 being a, a good conversion and he, he pulled it off it still works as a zoom and he produced some really great pictures on his uh on the, on the sony a7r you know it, it was in, incredible so um take take a look at that is uh, his account in particular take a look at the um the albums because he he breaks he's, he's got all of these things in his albums and sometimes i think he actually shows how he actually does stuff as well so that's a good place to look oh wow thanks for that that's yeah good. him and him and the lens bubbles guy um, he he's adapted just about everything. Pretty amazing stuff. Lens bubbles. Yeah, just Google lens bubbles. He'll okay. show up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, thank you. I think we will bring the uh, the the questions uh, section to an end. And now, um, I think our our listeners now have got a, a good idea about Anil already, because um, we've heard, heard quite a bit about you there. But I think it's a, what I'd like to do now is to give you an opportunity to tell our, let our listeners know a little bit more about you and uh, your photographic life and the kind of photography that you that you'd like to do. Sure. Um, well, okay. Well, in my day job, I, I work as a creative director, and in the past, I've worked in television. So I used to work with um, film crews directing on Super 16, Super 35, big Panavision lenses, all sorts of kit. But I never really stopped under well, not understood. I just never really bothered to to get that into the whole photography side of it because as a director, you can just tell people what to do. And you have a vision in your mind, and it's their job to achieve it. You have a director of photography there. Um, pulling focus and doing all that stuff for you so you don't have to care to a point. Um, but it's only been recently um, that uh, probably about three, four years ago, I decided to just get back into photography in a, in, a, in a bigger way. And I sort of retaught myself photography, just the basic principles of it. And um, I was using a Nikon FM3A. So the story behind that was um, back in 2006, I uh, one Christmas I was uh, drunk and trying to look find a, a, a Christmas present for my wife, and um, she had from her art college days she had an Olympus OM1 which was um, bricked basically it just wasn't working. So I thought you know in my drunken state five pints pints of Guinness I walked into the camera shop and said I want your best 35 mil SLR camera. And this being 2006 they were trying to sell me a digital camera, um, and I was no no I want a film camera. And they pulled out this FM3A. And I just 
put down the money for it uh, with a Nikon Series E 28 mil lens. Um, and I bought this thing for my wife and she just never ended up using it. Uh, life gets busy. And then one day we we're moving house and I found this gold box with Nikon written on it and I pulled this camera out and I started to use it again. So um, Nikon was my sort of first um, foray really into sort of proper photography, if you like, uh, and learning to to use it by myself. So uh, my journey into cameras uh, very much started with the Nikon um, camera. And I love that camera. It's gorgeous. And obviously with the F mount, you've got all that lovely Nikon glass and, you know, decades and decades worth of lenses that you can use. So uh, my main cameras now, I, I collect lots of cameras. Uh, if I see one, I kind of buy it. Uh, I can't let one go by if I see it in the charity shop. Um, but I, I mainly shoot, um, I've got a lot of Nikon cameras. So I've got a, oh my God, I wrote a list. Uh, I've got a, so I've got a, uh, an FM3A. I recently bought an F90X uh which is terrifying it just eats through film and that's a great fun to use that camera uh and you could you could uh, knock a house down with it it's just like a brick but on the digital side i have a nikon uh, d7100 a d750 and i recently bought a d850 uh, but what i really love doing with those cameras is uh trying out other old lenses and other combinations of things because in terms of my photography uh, yes, I, I like to learn about the technical side and, you know, get geek out with lenses to a point. But with me, I, I like to experiment. I like to just try and achieve different looks and different things. So the lenses, I, to some point, technically, I don't care what they are. I just care about how they look and what they do. Um, so in terms of my photography, uh, there's three areas what I do, really. I, I love shooting portraits. So be that uh, in my house, inviting someone around and setting up a lovely portrait uh, to shoot. I love shooting street portraits, uh, getting out there and stopping strangers and having a conversation and uh, just capturing them in the street. And I'll do that with film and digital uh, and try out all my lenses. Um, and I've developed some favorites through doing that and discovered ones that I really like. Uh, but then I also uh, love documentary photography and the, the photography side of things for me is not my main um, money earner. It's, you know, my day job as a creative director um, is where I, you know, earn my mortgage money. But the photography is something that slowly I, I'm building as a business uh, because the older I get, the more I want to get into it because I love it. And I'd love to be the the old guy that lives on the beach um, who takes lo portraits for local people and does them in his lovely arty way. <laughs> um but then also, so there's portraits and there's uh, documentary photography, uh, just following people around and, and getting a sense of um, a story and uh, building a story and, and, and what happens within there. So um, through doing that, I've ended up, um, I was in uh, China um, and Hong Kong last year and in India last year. And I ended up doing some documentary photography for the Premier League at a big football event um, and also capturing an, um, an architectural practice in Hong Kong. Um, so it's starting to pay slowly and sort of become more of a thing. Um, but then the area that I've, I've always liked and in all my work is really, I'll just call it experimental photography. And for me, um, I, I'm a graphic designer as well. Um, I draw as well. And so predominantly I see myself as an image maker. Um, and I like bringing lots of different things together to create images. Um, so, um, you know, I'll do, do something that involves photography and graphic design and illustration and put it all together in one image. Um, and I like to experiment. So this is where the whole lens thing and playing with lenses 
really comes into into its own for me. So one of the things I've done recently, I, I designed this device. Um, my background is I, I, I did a degree in animation and graphic design. So, you know, classic cell drawn and stop motion animation. Um, and the techniques they use in those cartoons. So Disney developed a system um, that if you watch cartoons like Bambi, um, what they did was they, they shoot vertically down. So they have a rostrum camera looking down. Then they have a sheet of glass on which they'll have each of their animation cells. And, you know, they shoot one and then they take it off and they put the next frame on and shoot it and so on and so forth. But what they developed was a system by which they could uh, create, uh, um, control the depth of field by having um, subsequent background layers on sheets of glass beneath the main animation cell. So if you imagine you're looking at a picture of Bambi and behind Bambi is the forest, but then that forest image may be broken down into four or five different layers of forest. And these layers of forest, as the camera looks down, they could control how far up and down they were away from the top layer. So that meant essentially they were sort of controlling the depth of field of the background. They could blur the background that way without having to touch the main camera because obviously the main camera is focused on bambi uh but if you want the forest to pull focus you actually pull focus you pull the background away so it becomes out of focus if that makes sense so i i did i designed this um thing which essentially is two blocks of wood which has lots of uh vertical slits in them and and what they allow me to do is mount sheets of glass um into uh, um, into the slits, and I. Uh, how, how can I say it without trying to sound pretentious? Uh, I'll just say it. But one of my challenges is with photography is, it's photography is not new. It's been there for centuries, and I think every photographer tries to find a new way of looking at the world, a new way of seeing. Um, and some people achieve it um, just by you know you either be be the first or be the best at what you do, and that's how you can make a name. And I. I'm trying to experiment with a new way of creating a world that I can photograph because sometimes, you know, you can't just go out and go, oh, I know I'll take a, a plane to Japan and just film the, the street lights in Shibuya tonight because you're stuck in your house. So how can you create your own world? So I thinking of that Disney machine and the way they used to animate, I designed this object where I can have sheets of glass that sit in these slits on these wooden blocks. And I can, if you like, point my camera and look through all those sheets of glass. Um, Then what I do is I create worlds within there. So I will take photographs and I will print those photographs out, cut out the characters in those photographs and place them on different layers of glass that go off into the distance. So when I point my camera through I can pull focus on my camera. I can move the distance between uh, the subsequent sheets of glass. I can play with all sorts of things. Backlighting, I can draw on the sheets of glass themselves. But essentially, you, you're, you're literally creating a new world where you can mix photography and um, drawings and drops of water and bring in all sorts of things. And this is where the joy of the lenses comes in because you can start to pull focus and play with crappy lenses and light something weirdly and get weird you know, chromatic aberration and weird lens flares and things coming in. So I, I love that area of trying to create something new. Um, that's and, so, that's, I was going to say, that sounds incredible. What what kind of scenes would you be looking to create there? Well, there, there's a section on my website. I'll, I'll, I'll go, go into it later. But I, uh, the way I first start gone about it is I've, and I, I like this idea of taking photographs of photographs. 
because you can take photographs of people in different situations and bring in bring them into one scene. So I would take a lot of black and white street photographs. I'll, I'll cut the people out. Um, and then I'll put them together. But then I might have taken a photograph of a shot of the sea, for example, you know, a distant um, seascape. I'll print that out large and put that in the background on a big cardboard box. So that becomes the background to my scene. Then in the foreground, I've got these people I've cut out and placed on these sheets of glass. And so they, I can then play with the ordering of those sheets of glass. I can then play with the focus, who I'm focusing on. I can push the, the background seascape further backwards and forwards. So it becomes this really nice rig uh, that I usually set up on my dining table with all the curtains closed and loads of lights everywhere that I can just mess around with. And um, I'll do usually do this digitally, and I'll, I'll um, have a, a camera linked up to my laptop so I can quickly shoot, see the shots and see what's happening. Uh, but you can just create some absolutely gorgeous effects. But I like this idea of essentially reusing my photographs in new ways. So I'm creating photographs with my other photographs, if that makes sense. So I can combine shots I took in LA in the early 90s with shots I took in Brighton last week and creating just very abstract and interesting worlds. And some of these things are very rooted in reality. So I can create a scene that perhaps features people in one environment. Uh, but some of it essentially is just almost like a living photographic collage. Is, is it the layers of thought section on your website? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's I mean, the one. Yeah, so you can see how I, I, you can start to play in really interesting ways. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, I like the raw nature of it. You're cutting out these photographs. So you don't get perfect edges on things. You, and people are like, what is this? Is this a photograph? Is this a collage? And for me, it's like a living three-dimensional photographic collage. Um, but you're photographing the whole thing, which I love. And the, the, the permutations and possibilities are endless. So I could bring in physical effects. I can have, I could actually light a match and have smoke going through the shot. Yeah. I could have someone sat in the background. And that's something I want to do is shoot someone sat behind the panes of glass and I could draw over the panes of glass in front of them and pull out some of their features and, and then get a shot of them with that drawing over themselves. Um, so that, that experimental side is something that that's really, really big for me. It's, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving what I'm seeing here. I think that, that those, those listeners that are struggling to visualize um, what we're what you're talking about there, please go to your website on, and it's uh, animalmysteryphoto.com and um and the section is layers of thought and it's it's once you actually see the pictures it, it really comes together you understand exactly what what you're saying there it makes so much more sense i think it's, there's another section there as well um which is called dark times if you look at that as well um that's one that done in black and white which is more sort of stage of yeah sort of shots of people based in reality but you can see how you can just create really really interesting world basically and i love the idea of a world that over which you have your absolute own control mm -hmm. because photography you know it can get very expensive you know whether it's just the cost of traveling somewhere to take a picture um though that, that that's great to do but we can't do it every week so i thought you know if i'm sat at home and it's a rainy afternoon how can i create some new photographs so i designed and sketched out this thing and I spoke to a local carpenter and he built it for me. And then I went out and bought sheets of glass and sheets of perspex. 
but now I want to bring all sorts of stuff into it and physical objects, even animals, you know, I could place cockroaches on the glass and they could be walking around. There's just the possibilities are endless. Uh, and that, that's something that really excites me. I can, I, can I can absolutely see that. And this is, this is one of those, those areas where I think probably the majority of the people that are actually listening to the podcast at the moment will be there thinking yeah, we, we, a lot of us can be technically good photographers and we can walk into a situation and take a, a good photograph and make the most of what's there but if we have to pull something from our own imagination our own creativity then it's so much harder in there and what you do here i think is absolutely amazing thank you and for me also you know for me some of the best photographs ever taken were not in focus you know, yeah. they were they were blurry. They were they were crappy. Some of them, but the point is, the the act of taking them in that way made them what they are. And for me, you know, I say it a lot. But I think focus can be overrated, or sharpness can be overrated. It, it's not about that. It's actually about what's in the frame. Because again, I I look at back back at some of my favourite photographs taken by you know amateurs or pros throughout the years. A half the time, I don't know what camera they've taken it on, and I don't care. It's the image. And the impact that image has had on me that I find the most important. Um, in fact, you know, I've, I've, I've done it a few times. I've lied. I've, you know, I've, I've, put, I've posted a picture up and said, this was taken with this camera and this lens. And people go, oh, that's great. But no one actually knows. <laughs> no one can actually tell. If you look at a sharp black and white photograph, no one can say that was taken with this camera and this lens. And, and it, it almost becomes, you know, a moot point. It, it, it doesn't matter. And for, for me, the image is always king. The content is king. And so for me, you know, the way I go about my photography is just to try to create interesting images. But don't get me wrong. I love the kit. And that's why I'm here. I'm talking to you guys because um, I, I love information. I love the design of the the, lens, the cameras, the lenses and all that stuff. But for me, the ultimate point of them um, is, yes, I love to hoard them. <laughs> but it's also about creating something just great to look at um and that's the question i always ask myself yeah that okay that picture's sharp it's well lit but is it interesting to look at is it something new and you know then then i realize a lot of the time you know what i've been, uh, half the time i've been taking photographs that are just testing out my camera and my lens if that makes sense mm -hmm. um oh look that, that's nice and blurred in the background great but so what you know but what's the content of the image so in terms of pushing my own work the way i go about it is to really question you know, is that a good image? Yes. Um, you know, it, is it technically a good image? And that sometimes that's enough because you're capturing something that's hard to capture right. And that's the exercise for the day. But a lot of the time for me is just what have you created and what's the impact it's having on someone? Is it leaving someone in a sense of wonder or thinking, wow, that's weird? Or what's I like to get a reaction from my from my work. But also I like to keep on trying new things. And for me, my, my journey of trying new lenses and things is just to find those interesting things that that pop up. And a lot of the time, they're not about technical prowess or perfection. They're about the happy mistakes or the, the, the crappiness of something that, that gives it a certain character um, that I look for. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, I suppose, what I'm about and, and where my photography is at the moment. How was that? <laughs> that's, that? That was absolutely fascinating. And it, um, and it also gives us a, a bit of a lead into something, a question I've got for you. And uh, and I know that uh, Carl and Johnny will have something to say on this as well. Um, because yeah. you, you mentioned there about some of the greatest photographs weren't in focus. And the, the, the most obvious uh, exponent of that is uh, Cartier-Bresson. And uh, because many of his fantastic mo uh, shots 
uh, just weren't in focus. But it didn't matter because he, he captured a moment and there's the soul in the shots and 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 so on. And uh, so he's he's famous for his street photography and the, and and also street portraits as well. And there's there's a lot of um, uh, quite quite often in different Facebook groups, uh, somebody will post a photograph and somebody will say, "Well, that's not a street shot. It's a it's an urban shot, or it's a it's a street portrait, and you belong in the wrong group, and you should go." And uh, <laughs> and uh, I'd I'd like to get uh, your take and also uh, Johnny and Carl's take on uh, the difference between street photography, maybe urban photography, street portraits. Um, so perhaps, yeah. perhaps you want to go first on that, Anil. Yeah, well, okay. For me, street photography is, I suppose, photography that captures the human condition. That's the way I look at it. And for me, it's about candid capturing moments that are happening in real life um, on a street um, and out in the in the just in the world. So you're walking around the street. You've got a camera. You see something happen. You just capture it. Or you might be waiting in a light trap where the light's gorgeous, and every time someone walks by, you capture them in a certain moment and get a lovely silhouette and a gorgeous shadow. Um, there's many artistic interpretations of street photography, but for me, the in the essence of it is going out there, not knowing what you're going to see, and capturing the human condition moments of between people or people in their environment that over time I think sort of become a part of social history and that that's in a nutshell how I see street photography so it's I go out it's unplanned I'll take a camera and I'll wander around and I'll see what what happens um, and and find things and try and f- capture interesting moments and then for me the street portrait is quite simply portraits of people i found on the street so that's about wandering around stopping people i think look interesting or that i want to take a shot of um engaging with them and then the way i like to take a street portrait i I try not to get my um my people to smile i just like a a, just a straight look directly down the barrel of the lens because for me this is the portrait moment uh, with a total stranger and just to get a sense of you know i like that that idea of looking into their soul so for me a street portrait is just wandering around not knowing who you're going to meet but stopping people and literally taking their portrait on the street in that street background and that street environment and what would be a documentary photographer so for me documentary photographer is literally documenting something that's happening so as an example um Okay, I, w- um, I went, I did a project, it's on my website, um, for a special effects company. Um, so Andy Serkis, the guy who played Gollum in Lord of the Rings, um, he has a company called The Imaginarium, which they do motion capture. So they have people in these crazy suits in giant warehouses with infrared lights shining on them, and they capture their motion, which is then, that motion is then ca- uh, transferred onto computer-generated characters. So films like The Planet of the Apes and all those things, uh, sees and all those guys were actually played by real actors uh, doing all those movements, but then those movements were translated onto uh, a computer-generated model. So this company, Imaginarium, um, I went there and I spent a day just documenting what they do. So from the start of the day, I just photographed them doing what they do. So it becomes a sequence of photographs um, documenting an event or Um, a process so through looking at those you see how people behave and what they're getting up to so for me that's about being very objective Um, essentially there's a it's 50 50 about 
being informative uh, about what you're doing because you want to tell a clear story about what happens at this place. But then obviously, you know, where you stand and how you frame those things is the the, the creative part of it. But for me, that that all comes down to the, the criteria I would apply to that situation is, okay, what's the best way I can tell this story so a stranger looks at these photographs and understands what's going on here? So that is, for me, documentary photography, there's no interfering with the people and what they're doing. I'm, so it's almost it's almost like street photography in but in a following a process. But street photography for me is more cr creative and subjective. For me, documentary photography has an objective point to it, which is trying to tell a story of what people are doing somewhere. Then there's also the environmental portrait, uh, which um, is for me a portrait of someone in their environment. So as an example, again, on my site, I've got um, some shots of a friend of mine. He's a painter, uh, Enzo. So I went to his flat and his flat is full of paintings. I mean, you cannot even step on any, you have to be careful where you step on the floor. The whole place just smells of linseed oil and oil paint. Every surface has got paintings all over it. But the, the, what I try to capture an environmental portrait is a, is a shot of this person, but also the world, they're in so it's about it's a portrait shot capturing the character of that person but the character of their world so i would stage him and set him up in different rooms of his house either with paintings behind him or surrounded by all of this equipment or surrounded by that, that this sort of glorious artistic mess and capture the essence of that person and the, the space that they work in so you really look at them and understand what they're about and see what their life is about well, that, that just came across as four very comprehensive uh, answers there. Which, oh, um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, it, it made total sense for me. I'm just, just wondering if uh, Johnny or Carl have got anything to, to add to that. So I, I'm, I, I do street photography when I get an opportunity. And the town we live in is kind of small, so it doesn't lend itself to doing very much. But I really like the idea of street portraiture. But I wonder about, you know, kind of the... the actually how to how to execute it so i was in washington and I, I was walking around and i was doing street photography and so there are people that are very interesting and they're walking along quick they're on their way somewhere and then there's homeless people and then there might be a guy out having a smoke taking a break from a restaurant or something like that and then there's protesters and i think the only things that i've ever taken that i'd call a street portrait are people holding up a sign who will pose for me to take their photograph but but how do you i mean how do you stop someone who looks interesting but they're walking along and uh i mean what do you say to them do you get I, a conversation I, yeah I, th I think um firstly it comes down to just asking a question about to yourself which is what am i afraid of uh, because the the and it's it's such a human truth here and the reason a lot of people can't or don't try and take a street portrait um, is because they're a they're afraid of rejection or someone saying you know F you and punching you in the face or worrying about that sort of embarrassing interaction if you like a reaction that can happen on the street because you're dealing with a stranger um, so I, I think I, I could give you some tips here I mean the, the first thing is obviously if someone looks in a rush don't stop them because they're in a rush and if you try and stop them it'll piss them off right. um, and when you're starting out with street portraits make it easy on yourself so find places where people are generally in a mood that is relaxed and they're enjoying themselves so you know a park for example people aren't going anywhere they're just chilling out or a street festival or something where th there's a good mood going on yeah. um and that makes things a lot easier um 
but also in terms of interacting, um, it's quite easy. And the good thing is to put yourself in the shoes of the person you want to stop. Okay, if you're a stranger walking down the street and someone comes up to you with a smile on their face and says, excuse me, I love your hat and I think you look great, would you mind if I took your your picture? Um, you know, how would you feel if you were a person asked that? It's, you'll, you'll probably feel quite flattered. Uh, you're not going to be angry. Um, so if you turn it around and, and see how your subject feels, you know, firstly, the, the, the act of you asking them isn't a bad thing. You have every right to do that. And you should, A, feel at home on the street and stopping people and asking them. Um, uh -huh. But people, most people, I would say, generally, I get probably an 80% hit rate. Um, what, what gets hard is sometimes, you know, you have two or three no's in a, in a row. And it can kind of hit your confidence a little bit um, because human nature, again, takes over. Because, you know, usually if you stop someone and ask them, there's usually someone around watching. You know, someone passing by thinking, oh, what's going on here? And then if you get rejected, it's just that human thing of, oh, God, I feel a bit embarrassed and all these people are staring at me. But the great thing is you've got a pair of legs, so just keep walking. And again, you belong there. You're on the street. You're a person with a camera. You're an artist. Enjoy your, yourself and, and relax. Um, but for me, it's, you know, a, an easy way is if you find someone who's really good looking or who's dressed really well, uh, that points to the fact that yeah, they're usually quite vain and they want to be seen as, as good looking. So if you stop them and say, wow, I love your dress. Uh, would you mind if I took a picture? You just look great against this background here. Uh, chances are, A, they'll be flattered. And then B, either they'll have time or they won't. So if they don't have time, they'll say, oh, that's really kind of you, but I, I've got to go. Otherwise, they'll go, yeah, that's fine. And then you know, you've got them. So just to make the most of the 30, 40 seconds uh, that you've got with them um, and just frame them. And then one, once, you've, once they've agreed, then you are the director. You are in control of them. So tell them what you want. Uh, and they like that because otherwise people get, you know, people like that sort of direction. So I'll say, okay, don't smile. Look directly into the lens. Just stand there. Okay, just turn around a bit because I don't like the background here. Uh, okay, let me take a few shots and one more, and just just get 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 the few shots you want, and then thank them, and then move on. The other thing I do is I printed a card, uh, so it's it's a quirky little yellow card, and it's on one side it says it says hello, please may I take your picture, and on the other side it's got my Instagram details and an email address. So that way, I can give the card to the people, so there's a nice return path, and they I can say right, this picture will go on my Instagram feed, and if you see it, um, then get in touch and I'll send you a copy. So then they've got something out of the transaction as well. That's good. That's really, that's great. So it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's just not, usually it's shyness. People get shy. People think, Oh God, I'm going to look like a dick walking up or look like a creep um, asking someone on the street. And, and that can happen. Um, you know, but people, ha you know, the thing to remember is people have a right to say no, but more importantly, you have a right to ask and you should ask because, you know, it, by doing this, A, it opens up conversations with strangers. And for me, the, the thing I like about it is it, it makes me feel more human as well. Because nowadays, we just stare at our phones all the time. Uh, as you get older in life as well, you have a smaller circle of friends. When I'm out with my camera, I'm making friends on the street. And I've met people. And through this, I've, I've made friends and got to know people and ended up getting work through people recommending me on Instagram and people saying, oh, this guy took my picture. And so I'm saying, oh, I'd love it if you took my picture. And then you become the guy who takes pictures of people on the street. Um, that's so great. that's great. Yeah, just enjoy it. Uh, you know, don't, just don't, do not 
everything there's uh, any particular rules the, the the rules are the sort of just the common sense bits of human behavior another thing i'll always say if you see if you're walking past someone their their shoes are in bad condition probably don't stop them because they've probably got bigger problems going on in their life and that was a a tip i got from a friend of mine who's a social worker um because there are certain physical cues you can walk past someone and just look at check them out for a minute and think are they okay are they someone i want to speak to or, or would value me speaking to them or do they have you know bigger deals to deal with in their life and you know yep. so just just having that bit that 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 human sixth sense which we all have um but be bold and enjoy it because i think once you get over you've asked a few people and they've stopped um and they've allowed you to take their picture it just opens up your mind and and your world of potential as a photographer and you go holy shit this is something i can do anytime i can walk around my camera and just stop people uh, and i can go through a day um and depending upon what mood I'm in, sometimes I'm just not feeling it, so I won't. But usually, if, if I'm in the right mood, I can get, come out with about 50 photographs in a day, 50 street portraits, just stopping one person, stopping another person, and just and then walking somewhere else and keep on doing the same thing. Another good tip is if you see groups of people. If someone's alone, they're usually a bit more shy. If you see a bunch of guys hanging outside a bar, they're having a few drinks, the, the whole guy thing is going on, you know, they're trying to be one up on each other. So if you say to one of the guys, hey, would you mind if I took your picture? You look great. All of his mates will probably want their picture taken too. Uh, <laughs> because they're part of a group, the group mentality kicks in. So t- there's, a, there's quite a bit of psychology in all this stuff. Um, but, but it's, you know, and people like it. It's a flattering thing if someone stops you on the street and asks to take your picture. And again, if you qualify why you're doing it, and it's nice thing. So my, my line is always, well, I'm a street photographer. I'm out taking some portraits of interesting people I bump into on the streets today. I'd love to have your picture. Would you mind? And it's as simple as that. So it's a simple proposition. I've told them who I am. I give them my card as well. So I you know, don't look like some creep. Um, so they know they can contact me if they want and they know they're going to get a picture and it just makes it nice and neat and simple. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be a line that you heavily rehearse in your mind and has to be perfect because again, you're dealing with a human being. So give them eye contact, smile and just talk. Yeah, that's great. So do you have any, um, go-to equipment for when you're, you're, you're going out? Um, because I'm, I'm guessing there are times where you'll be going out specifically to do street portraiture and there'll be times where you go out specifically to do street photography. I'm not sure if that's the case or whether you yeah. mix the two. Yeah, I, I, well, I will usually mix the two. Um, recently I bought, um, it's a long story, I, I recently got a Nikon D850, which I like to use with some old Nikon glass. Um, and to afford that, I had to sell my Leica M7 but in return, because I was still missing the M mount, I bought a Minolta CLE. So that's become my sort of film go-to street portrait film camera, if you like, um, that and the FM3A. So on the Minolta, I'll use my Voigtlander uh, 40mm 1.4 Nocturne. And on the Nikon, I'll, I'll use my uh, 50mm 1.2 Nikkor AIS. Uh, so I like that focal length. Uh, I don't want to be too wide because you get the distortion. Um, and I also like getting a nice blurry, blurry background where I can. So you just, again, you're focusing on the person. Um, uh, otherwise, if I'm just in the mood to not mess around, I will go totally digital and autofocus. Uh, but I like the the slowing down thing because, again, it engages the person. They like seeing. And that's the other thing. People love to see an old film camera. And they'll say, is that film? And they're, they're quite flattered. It's like, yeah, this is film. And it's going to take a few weeks before you get this picture back. Um, so, yeah, I would say forty between 40 and 50 is my ideal focal length for street photography. Um, 
any any longer than that, you have to stand really far back, and that makes it difficult to take a street portrait, especially if you're in a busy area. Uh, you don't want to be blocking a street because that really pisses people off, and that can create problems. Um, and any wider, it just doesn't look right. I just like you know people to, the, the proportionally to look correct. Um, and it's just nice to have a lens with a, a bit of character that just renders really, really well. Most of my shots I like to do in black and white as well because black and white takes away any extraneous color or other distraction or pattern or things you generally find on the street. So as much as possible, you're focusing on the person and looking into their eyes and into their face. Well, this sort of brings us nicely onto a, yeah. a question that we've um, been given by James Thorpe. Okay, um, which is more to not not really to do with the uh, the street portraiture, but certainly street photography. Um, and he's he's curious about how you set your camera up and how you set your your, your lens up, whichever lens that you're doing there. Yeah. Um, as in, are you are you zone focusing? Are you trying to focus on the fly? Um, which, how, I, how, do you, how do you do it? Well, yes, that's a good question actually. Because yesterday I was doing this, so I took the Minolta CLE out, so I've got the forty mil lens on it. Um, and despite the fact that it was a bright day, I didn't use 100 or 50 film. I used 400 film. Uh, and because of the higher ISO, um, I was in a situation in bright sunlight where I could focus my 40mm lens at, what, three meters at f11 and everything from just under two meters to about eight to 10 meters was in focus. So I simply didn't have to look at all at any more focusing. And all I could do was just look through the viewfinder, frame, and shoot. And sometimes, I'll, I, you know, with, if I've got the bigger, you know, autofocus lenses, but we don't talk about those here, I'll, I'll use it that way. But I like, I don't like to go too wide with my street photography as well. Um, I don't know why it almost feels like cheating, and that sounds daft. But also, the, the problem I find on streets is, and it's a, it's, it's a strange thing. I've, I've discussed it with a number of people. Is that for me, I like the sort of classical nature of street photography, that idea of trying to find a, photograph, a photograph that feels timeless. And sometimes in the modern world nowadays, everyone's talking or staring at their damn phone and it just annoys me and it just kills an image. If you've got zombies walking by staring at their phone, you found this lovely moment and then you get in the frame, edge of your frame, you've got someone staring at a phone. It just really annoys me. Despite the fact that this person told me that, you know what, when you know, 20 years from now, that will have a value. The fact that we'll look at these photos and go, look at that person staring into their phone. You know, they, they, they didn't have brain implants back then. <laughs> you know, it's kind of tragic. But for me, I, I like that idea of photograph that you're not caught out by a giant McDonald's advert in the distance. So, so I, I like to frame a little bit tighter than probably a 35 or a 28, which is what most people would possibly use for street photography. Because um, I like to just try and frame a moment and not have to crop in afterwards or mess around with my shot. But I like to, so going back to the question, oh, yeah, I do zone focus and I do it more, more and more often. Because the other thing is I used to get really annoyed when an image was slightly out of focus and I'd stand there and especially with the rangefinder, they're not the quickest cameras to focus very quickly. Um, so you can lose the moment. And Again, I've learned to embrace that an image, you know, might be slightly under or overexposed and the image may not be in focus or just not come out quite right. But as long as the image is in there, because that's the moment I wanted to capture. And again, the slight blurring of me panicking to get the shot will add to the shot itself. 
that makes sense. Yeah, and that- I, I think I, I've learned to embrace that and stop caring because, again, it's you're, you're trying to get the best thing, but in the action of doing it, that little happy accident that may happen, if it yeah. happens, let it happen um, because that's part of the joy. And, again, it, it allows you to just totally focus on – pardon the pun of just looking through the viewfinder um so where i can now with my uh minolta i will um zone focus uh and just leave it as you know probably from two to three meters to 10 meters you know then i've got a big area where i can just pop in and just quickly take shots of whatever comes my way um yeah well, it's it's interesting. Also, from the the second part to where, uh, well, it's it's not a supplementary question. It's it's, it's more of a statement by James, um, where you know if he, he'll shoot at f eight to get uh, more in focus, but he, he prefers to knock things a little bit out of focus by going say to five point six. Yeah. Um, but as, as soon as you go to five point six, that makes everything that much harder to actually hit focus. Where you're, it, it is almost like saying either do it to f8 or 5.6 whereas you actually do it completely differently again and you you will you will close that aperture down much more and have a, a much greater depth of field because you're you're not really attempting to isolate the background because i assume the background is every every much part of the story and, and what you're actually trying to take yeah for me street photography is like yeah some i it, it's it's something where i i I don't want to th- overthink it too much. I don't want to get too technical about that. I want to just capture the content. And, and for me, the question is, and that's why, even though it was a bright day, I'll use 400 film. I, I mean, to be honest, you know, another way of looking at it is I could, I could have used, I could have pushed the film to 800 and stopped down even more and had an even a bigger depth of field. Then that makes my life a million times easier. And then also when I push it um, in, in development afterwards, um, I'll get a really contrasty, gorgeous image. So I like to make my life easy while I'm doing it because otherwise you can get caught up in just faffing around with the camera. And, you know, again, I love aperture priority on cameras. Um, And some people get into arguments about being a purist. And look, come on, you know, it's just one less thing to think about. Do you want to capture this moment or do you want to dick around with your camera for ages? What are you out here to do? Technology is there for us to use and it helps us. It's not cheating. It's there and, and use it. You know, if it makes your life easier, just just go for it because it's one less thing to have to think about and you are more likely to come away with the right image as opposed to, you know, messing around with light meters and this, that and the other. Um, I, I like the, the the slowing down of film and I like the enjoyment of using manual lenses. But there's also for me, there's a jump off point where it, it can become a pain in the ass and you're missing moments. So for me, the, the, the cheat, if you like, the way around it, I, I'll use a higher ISO uh, film. Um and then that that will afford me a, a bigger depth of field. And then I simply don't have to worry about it. I just know that everything will be in focus or thereabouts. And I can just go around and really enjoy what I'm out there to do for that day, which is snapping and not messing around with, with the camera. Yeah. Um I just I want to bring uh, the the conversation around to a, a project which um, it's I, th- I think dormant might be the uh, the, the <laughs> correct term for it and um, and I've, I've I've heard about this but so I I listened to uh, the uh, you were a guest a few weeks ago or, or a month or so ago on yeah. the Sunday Sixteen podcast and uh, you've you've covered a few things that were on there and, and you've done a, a lot of things that that, that weren't but one of the um, things that you uh, talked about on there was the uh, a project they had where you 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 uh, did a photo book called Goodnight Sweetheart. Yes. Um, and uh, I'd like if you could tell us a little bit more about that because I think it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I, I think this this arose from again 
when you when you go out shooting things and you think your shots are interesting and everyone else thinks they're boring, you know, everyone shoots the same shit all the time. You know, uh, a sunset, a lonely tree, you know, a barn. Uh, well, there's, there's so many photographic cliches, and it's very hard to be different and be original. So I'm always looking for interesting things and uh, ways of looking at the world. So, for example, I might go out and so one day I'll just look down. What am I seeing on the floor? I'm just going to capture things I see on the floor. And if, when you set yourself for rigid um, constraints, you're forced to work within them, and that makes your work interesting. But the other thing is, with photography people it's nice to see sets of things you know if you just see random where a lot of photographers fail they'll just show their portfolio just random images one after the other if you show a set of things you're showing a thought process and a focus on something and it makes people think about that one thing so for me it was um for years i i i've been just taking photos of mattresses that i see dumped on street corners uh because i, I think they're beautiful objects um they look like art installations and they also look very very tragic i also wonder at the boldness of the strangeness of people who just creep out and throw them on pavements at night and run away again um but the, the mattresses for me are symbolic of the, the, the human condition if you like you know um we we do great things on mattresses uh, we sleep on them we make love on them you know we die on them they, they, they are they're a big focal point of life uh but then we dump them and throw them away and for me they they uh, they struck a chord with me because um, I'm, you know, I'm in my late 40s now, and I, I look at those slumped mattresses, and I, I feel like one when I see one on the street corner. I feel like my best days are over. I'm spent, and you know, and when my, when um, in my dark thoughts, I sort of see myself as one of those things. So I, I started taking pictures of them because they're funny as well, because they come in all sorts of crazy colours and patterns, and they're dumped in the most ingenious ways, in, but also in the most lazy ways. People will just chuck them in their front garden and not give a shit, and or some are left, and they've been there for decades, and plants are sprouting out of them. So they're just really interesting objects. So for, for the past four or five years, I, wherever I saw a mattress, uh, wherever I was, um, I would take a picture of it. So eventually I decided to uh, make a book uh, of these mattresses, uh, of pictures of them. But I, I got them all together and I thought, okay, they're great, but that wasn't enough. So I, I, I decided to ask friends of mine who are of a similar age to me uh, to give me their mattress-inspired thoughts. So by that I mean, okay, look at these mattresses, look how shitty and tragic they are. I know that at your age and your stage in life, you probably feel shitty and tragic sometimes. Tell me about it. So they wrote little poems, bits, pieces of prose, paragraphs, rants at the world, um, whatever they wanted to write. Um, and then I created a book where um, every time you open a page spread, on the uh, left-hand side, you see an image of a mattress. And on the right-hand side, you see a piece of prose that one of my friends has written. So I reached out to a whole bunch of people and I put this thing together. And... Yeah, I realized that the, the, the combination of the images and the words became quite tender and poignant, and it became something that sort of felt like more than the sum of its parts. It wasn't what I initially set out to do, which was this sort of just this wacky, fun mattress book. Um, it became something quite emotional, and um, it hit me that these were, these were guys uh, who are getting older in life. They've had experience of life, but we all feel shitty at times, and we all feel a certain way. So I decided to um, sell the book and give the proceeds to a charity called Calm, uh, which is the Campaign Against Living Miserably, which, um, and the money will go towards um, help to helping to prevent male suicide, which is a very big killer of men. It's the biggest killer of young men between 18 and 40, I think, or 25, 40 um, in the UK, and something like 84 men a week commit suicide 
in the UK. And it, it, it became something about the idea that men don't talk about their feelings. And here was a book about men expressing their feelings and just saying, looking through this book, some of it's sad, some of it's funny, some of it's poignant, but it makes you go, you know what? Hey, we all feel this way and it's okay. But beyond that, the most important thing to take from the book was it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to tell people because we're all in the same boat. So um, I, I printed an, uh, something like 150 copies of the book. Um, there's still some on sale. But any, anyway, that, that was the project. And um, I've been quite amazed by uh, the response I've had. I've, I've now become the mattress guy and people <laughs> in my local <laughs> pub and everywhere, I mean, literally from around the world, are sending me pictures of mattresses. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> So that that's a that's a that's a project that's um, that's completed there. Uh, yes. you, you're, you're working on something else now, or thinking yeah. moving towards something now. Yeah. So this is something um, I moved. I live. I don't live in Brighton, by the way. I live in Shoreham by Sea, which is a oh. town that's just seven miles west of Brighton. So I live on the coast, um, and I moved out of London eleven years ago. But whenever you move somewhere new, um, you try and find a pub or a place that's nice for you to go and have a drink. And this town, they, they were all a bit crappy. And then I discovered a pub right on the edge of town called the Duke of Wellington. And it's just become a home from home for me. And up for the past four or five years since I started going there, I've been surreptitiously taking pictures. But I also did a project there, which is on my website as well, called the Pub Portrait Project. So early last year, I set up a, a black backdrop and I took a series of Rembrandt-style lighting portraits uh, of people who just walked into the pub that day. So I ended up with something like 47 portraits um, throughout the day, properly staged and set up and beautifully lit. Um, and then also I've been capturing just life in that pub on all sorts of different cameras, uh, all sorts of different films and everything that goes on there. And I'm creating a book that's going to be about that pub and life in it. But it, essentially it's about every English pub that some, that you come to love. You know, it's about everyone has going back to cheers, you know, you know, you want to go where everybody knows your name. It, every, you, you find that place and you feel like you're at home. So the book's going to be lots of pictures. Also, I've done drawings whilst I've been sat there drinking my whiskey in the corner. So I've done a bunch of illustrations of life and things going on. So it's good. The book's going to be a bunch of photographs. It's going to be my sketches and drawings. But also I've put together a questionnaire, which is being handed out to real regulars of the pub who've been going there for decades, asking them about the place. So ultimately it will be words, pictures, um, drawings, photographs, all put together into this this book basically and the idea is it's like a love story to the english pub and you don't have to go to the duke of wellington because you can look at this book and this will be relevant to you because everyone has a pub like that that they just love they feel at home that they're surrounded by friends that they love and the fact and i think that comes through in the photographs i've taken as well it's got some lovely calm gentle quiet moments when there's you know no one there there's light spilling through the stained glass windows and there's just some old guy john who's over 90 sitting in the corner sipping his pint but sometimes it's wild and crazy and there's music going on um but as, as well as that there's portraits of the people some of the regulars within the place so we'll get a sense of just the life and the culture and again that the idea of a bit of the social history and a snapshot uh, of this place but but through my eyes as well so the, the way i see it um, and the characters there. So that's something I've, I'm hoping to put together and, and have ready before the end of the year. It's quite a big project. I'm still working out how to get it printed and how to do it, how many copies to make, and then I've got to actually design the thing as well. Uh, but that's my next sort of uh, big thing that I'm working on. When, when you mention an English pub there, I think, uh, I think of Carl, uh, because he, uh, 
he's, he often will send me a, a, a photograph uh, or mention I'm off to an English pub at, at the moment and I think he could uh, do with this this book to uh, understand what an English pub actually no, is. He, Carl, just watch The Wicker Man. <laughs> well, Simon, if you ever come here to visit, I'll take you to the pub and you can tell me whether it's a proper pub or not. Yeah, or, or watch American Wealth in London. The slaughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There. yeah, yeah. Remember the Alamo. I know that I've been in many pubs yeah. in Ireland and this pub's not anything like that. <laughs> but it is that thing, you know, because you, you can walk into a bar or a pub and, and, and I think the, the, the sentiment behind this is universal. Uh, you walk into a place suddenly everything stops everyone looks at you like you're a piece of shit and you clearly don't feel welcome there or you walk into places and people are just nice and gentle and you get on and you just feel like wow i feel like i've known you forever and that's what this is about it's about you know the pubs are strange places this central position it's not your home it's not your work it's somewhere you go to get away from other things somewhere you go to maybe just have a a sit in the corner and read the paper somewhere to go to just catch up with people and these people slowly become your friends but but they're sort of not people you see every day they're people you just see in the pub so i I love that it's just this it's like a, a a youth club you know, for for grown-ups, and you can go there, and it's it's this netherworld where it's got its own little reality in there, and everything's you know doing what it does, and you go away. But the fact that it's permanent is lovely. It's always there, um, and that that that's what I love about it. Well, I've I've got to say, I think it's absolutely fantastic about what you actually do with your camera equipment because for most of this the case of we'll pick it up and we'll go out to take some photographs and and we're we're happy with that whereas it's it's taken you in so many different creative directions it's um i think it puts a lot of us to shame frankly um, no well, thank you well, it's, it's just about i mean i love taking pictures but i also the question is you know you get to a point as you know you'll probably have boxes full of negatives or bo- and hard drives and terabytes full of images and think what the f- am I going to do with this stuff? What, what, what is the point of it? Um, and for me, it gives me a, a reason and a, a focus, again, pardon the punters, to go out and do something specific. And it, it, it gives me direction as well, because there's nothing worse than wandering around with the camera thinking, what, what shall I do today? Um, and it just gives me a, a sense of bringing lots of things together as well. It, it also engages the community. Uh, and that's what I like doing here. It's a small town um so we're going to have an open evening and you know loads of people are, are now asking me about the book and the other way of looking at it as well they're they're also they now know that i'm this local cat guy with the cameras so if they want a, a portrait taken or a portrait session they can give me a shout so you know it helps in all sorts of ways yeah now i know that before before we started today's uh, show we we've, we've got a list of things that we were going to yes. go through and uh, we're going to talk about your favorite lenses your favorite cameras and and all all of those things and i i think that um i'd like to sort of start to bring today at least to an end and i'd like to ask you if you can come back another time <laughs> absolutely and, uh, well, well yeah sorry have i ranted no, off no not, not at all oh, not at all I, I think it's been absolutely fascinating and um but i and i know there's another there's there's an, another full episode uh, where we can we can completely geek out on oh, uh, awesome. on, on your favorite lenses and why and 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 things like yeah. that so um, that would be great yeah so uh, i think that's 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 where we'll 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 go in that in that direction so um so i think that's I, I, unless Carl and I, I don't know, have you got anything, Carl and Johnny, that you want to get off your chest, um, other than shout outs, uh, be, be, or, or shall I bring things to an end? I think that's a great idea. Yeah, go ahead. Are you there, guys? 
Hello. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, 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 <laughs> they all were really silent. I thought I'd be cut off. No, no. Uh, sorry, it was. I, 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 I turned my volume off for some reason. Oh. But, um, but um, sorry. I, so I didn't actually hear anybody's answers there. So, uh, Carl yeah, or Johnny, have you, yeah. have, have you yes, got any, any, any more to uh, to add for this week's episode, or shall we, uh, shall we wrap up? I like I like the idea of breaking it into another another episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, okay. Well, with that, then. Um, let's uh, let's do some shout outs um actually I, I said earlier that i didn't have any and i did do a shout out earlier and i'm going to give another one now and i just wanted to uh, uh say congratulations to hamish gill for uh, being overfunded on his uh, pixelator um device uh, which is uh, making it easier for a lot of people to uh, digitize their negatives and uh, it went live on kickstarter last week and i think it was actually fully funded in 3 hours uh, so um, well, well done for that one, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, mine coming in the post whenever that's that's going to be. Because I could really do with something for 120 negatives at the moment. Uh, it'll do other things as well, but uh, 120 is really what I want to see, what I want to use it for. Um, Johnny, uh, I know you've got a shout out this week, and you're muted. We haven't. We seem to have lost Johnny at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, Oof. I'm back. I was, ah, I, was I was muted. Uh, yeah, I have a. I guess one or two. I've got a buddy here in Chicago that does. Uh, just thinking about um, the conversation here, he does this great project on Instagram called "What Was Breakfast," and he, he that's that's <laughs> sort of his opening um, to do these great street portraits of folks where he literally asks them what they ate for breakfast and 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 he and he does kind of pick people that are just like look interesting dressed interesting and does this the same sort of thing starts a conversation about that and then he'll um he'll have their caption explaining what they had for breakfast along with the photo so i really like that so it's literally um it's on instagram it's at what's for breakfast so we'll put a, a link there in the in the uh in the notes for this episode um and i wanted to give a little shout out lens lens related we didn't touch on this kind of at all other than the fact that i um and i i really looking at the project you were um you were talking through really has this a cool Russian sort of constructivism yeah. vibe to it yeah, as a, you know, as yeah, very graphic. I mean, I, my background is kind of similar to yours in that way in terms of um, graphic design. So I, I really like that aspect of that work. It looks very constructivist. So I, I was just thinking of um, this past week or two, I've been trying to get through the massive uh, 1969 Soviet um, four film series of war and peace, which is, absolutely amazing and there are all sorts of insane uh lens effects and i've been trying to do some research on the actual lenses used you know in terms of cinematography for that film series but um it, a lot of people have never heard of this it's it's um said to be one of the most expensive films ever made but anyway it's the the soviet version of war and peace wow. check it out if you want to see some just insane uh lens effects in terms of cinematography so that's my other kind of shout out or reference and cole have you have you got any shout outs this week not this week okay well uh Anul, I, I know that uh, you've you've got a, a a couple of shout outs and perhaps also uh, you can combine that with uh, letting people know how uh, they can follow your work 
Yeah, well, firstly, I'd like to thank you guys. Uh, just so kind of you to ask me to come on, and uh, I've really had, had fun. I'm sorry to rant on for so long that Not I required an episode two. Um, also, um, just Hamish Gill, 35MC, uh, Emma Emulsive, and Stephen Dowling at Cosmo Photo. These are people who've sort of um, given me such great advice and welcomed me into the fold of this uh, film photography world. So thank you. And just a final thing. Um, a guy called Robert Greenberg died uh, last week. Uh, Robert Greenberg uh, was an American, and he had a company called Robert Greenberg Associates. And they did the um, beautiful uh, titles for the film Alien, um, as well as uh, the visual optical effects for films like Xanadu and endless TV commercials and movies um, uh, in the 70s and 80s. And you, guys, you should really, really check out his work and his life because these guys were pioneers in visual special effects. They were doing stuff on film and with film. That was just mind-blowing. And for me, that the look of that era, uh, the visual look of a film um, special effects is something that the CGI can't touch. It's just, it's just like magic. So that's Robert Greenberg. Um, so in terms of my where you can find me, uh, so my name is Anil Mystery. That's A-N-I-L. M-I-S-T-R-Y and uh, my website is anilmysteryphoto.com at on Instagram I'm Instagram Instagram even <laughs> I'm at anilmysteryphoto and on Twitter I'm at anilmystery thank you well the uh, we'll put a, a link up um, we'll put some links up so we're at the end of uh, when we when we finish off if you could pass us on some uh, links and we'll put sure. those into the show notes later for, uh, for those people you mentioned there yeah. um, uh, Johnny how can people keep up with you uh, I'm in the uh, Classic Lenses uh, group on Facebook of course and then um, you can also find me on Instagram uh, at, at System Photography and you'll find me uh, most days at uh, Central Camera Company in Chicago at the sales camera sales counter. And Cole? I think mainly on the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook page, also on Instagram and on Flickr. And I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on Flickr as Simon Forster. Uh, my eBay shop, you can search for me with the, by searching for It's Fozzy. That's I-T-S-F-O-Z-Z-Y. I'm still trying to do Twitter. Um, but... <laughs> I, I'm still struggling to get my head around Twitter, um, but I'm there and I'm I'm trying. I'm persevering, but nobody notices it seems. <laughs> and uh, I've got my own website, uh, SimonForsterPhotographic.co.uk. Um, please get in touch with us with questions, and uh, this is Johnny's time to uh, tell us what the email address is. Classic Lenses Podcast at gmail.com. Well, well done. So. Uh, uh, you can find us all on the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses and I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast and it'd be great if you can join us again next week. Goodbye. Yeah, so we're all good, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we we ready to get going? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> this is the point where I forget everything that Simon just said and yeah. we, just, we just take it as it, you know, we just hack into it from the start here. So. Sure. I think Anil's already worked out that we make this up as we go along now. Oh, yeah. That's the only way to do it. Now, normally, Johnny likes to come second, but as... No, that's gone with you, Eddie. Here we go. Um, right, so that's what yeah. she said. Yeah, exactly. I've, already, I've, I've, I've blown it already now, haven't I? I've, I've come too soon um, with that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, I usually uh, bleep out the word shit. Um, 
but there's but frankly there's too many and i think the concept so, was that me you're so sorry it was yeah uh, <laughs> but the yeah but they, they uh, there were two f- in there which are going to go but uh, i'm going to leave the shits in uh, because i think it, 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 it's it's an adult it's an adult conversation at the end of the day so i'm going and they were they were in context and not totally understandable so uh, so they, they, they'll they'll uh, stay in there i'm bringing the tone down already sorry guys well uh, hamish did that a few weeks ago yes yeah. <laughs> Um, although he didn't ultimately, but he just rubbed off on Carl and Johnny and they just started swearing every week since. <laughs> it's like school, you've just got to keep us in line, otherwise yeah. things will get out of hand. Yeah. 